Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. This is the Chris Smith Show on today's news talk, TNT Radio. It is. G'day, g'day. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. December 7, it is, where I am in Sydney at least. Just gone 3 p.m. here, just gone 4 a.m. in London, and of course, still Wednesday night in the United States. That includes 11 o'clock in New York City and 8 o'clock in LA. Great to have your company. Thank you so much for being part of the program. I should remind those who may not have been tuned in to what we've been doing in the last fortnight, your radio station is now visual on just about every video streaming platform you can think of, certainly the video streaming platforms you are using. Our tntradio.live app has a watch live button that you could press so you listen as well as watch. The same as our website, the same as YouTube, Facebook, X, Rumble, Odyssey, and a long list of others, and that list is growing by the day. So there are plenty of ways to follow tntradio.live. And uh, just dominating the news at the moment, as you probably would know, we've had another horrific shooting, this time at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas campus. Three people were fatally shot and a fourth is critically wounded. That is information only 30 minutes old. The suspected shooter was also found dead. And in brighter news, brighter news, please, uh, the time person of the year is singer-songwriter Taylor Swift. Did you know that when Taylor Swift goes to a particular country on a tour, the economic spikes that uh, that country receives is big as any other decision the government makes to change the economy? This is an economy in itself, Taylor Swift. And well done to become Time Person of the Year for 2023, Taylor Swift. First up in this edition, the former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, I've got to say a shadow of his former confident self, was in the witness box overnight, the first of two days, maybe three, as he was grilled at the COVID-19 inquiry in the UK. I watched most of it, and I'll play for you some of what Boris had to say. Some of it was very, very emotional. And he was not at all the arrogant political upstart that we've seen in so many different facets, it was a very apologetic uh, Boris, almost weakened Boris Johnson, who kept saying he was sorry and that he took full responsibility for what happened during COVID-19, no matter who made the decision. So to that first up on the program, the COP28 Global Boiling Summit is at around about the halfway mark. And I thought that this was a really good time to unpack what has been promised what they are aiming to do in the second part of the summit and what it all means. Our environmental economist, Dr. Alan Moran, will take us through the good bits and also the BS. We'll catch up with Alan on the program in the first hour. The extremely articulate and opinionated Evelyn Ray from the Cauldron Pool joins us on the program today to discuss Joe Biden's denial of the truth over his secret communications with his son's business partner. Now, there are certain things you can say that may be lies. There are things that you cannot call lies if there's evidence to support them. And I think he's sort of 
gone one step too far, Joe, today. We'll explain that and get Evelyn's take of what it all means. We've also got one of those shocking clangers uh, spoken by the fiendish Democrat, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course. Uh, wait until you hear what she said about transgender problems in the United States. All of that with Evelyn. From down under, New South Wales MLC, Mark Latham will join us today. We'll talk about a federal government in absolute panic mode and the most comprehensive education results we've had in a long, long time. Uh, what do they say about our methods in the classroom? Not much at all. I'll also have something to say about a rather large article, an expansive article today in a Sydney newspaper on my former colleague and contributor to the program, Alan Jones. We have him on every Monday, and many of you may have come over to this program, to TNT Radio, because of Alan. It was a hit job and a half. We'll talk about that later in the program. Plus, the Queensland electrician who's taking on the Australian supermarket giants, Woolies and Coles for allegedly price gouging. Now, we know that Coles and Woolies have to front early next year to a Senate inquiry to explain whether they are price gouging or not. But wait till you hear what Dylan Frangimini has in store for Woolies and Coles, and she's asking for your help. We'll talk with Dylan a little bit later. And those talkback lines, they are open as usual from right now. So be part of the conversation. Come and have your say. And you can do so from the United States or Canada on 1-888-201-6425. From the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. I look forward to hearing what you've got to say. You're with Chris Smith. Broadcasting live, we are on the Global News Talk Network, TNT Radio, dot live. Be a part of the conversation. I want representation I can trust. Have your say. Biden isn't doing enough. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Now, after so much expectation and so many previews, former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has delivered almost five hours of evidence. I was only able to sit through three, uh, but five hours of evidence in formal hearings at the official UK COVID-19 inquiry. The inquiry, of course, he commissioned. He was always going to have his day in the witness box and it began overnight. He'll face a second day of questioning today, maybe a third, but maybe not. This inquiry is supposed to be an independent public inquiry, but I've got to say, rather than investigating the accuracy of mainstream narratives and therefore what government did about those narratives, it's become dominated by a whole heap of gossip. Who said what to who? Who wrote down special notes after someone what's at them? Uh, it's a lot of political theatre about who hates who and who's not in the zoo and the reputation management of pro-lockdown scientists as well. A little bit disappointing thus far. Now, Boris Johnson wasn't asked some of the pressing questions, which should have been asked, uh, were the inquiry truly independent and seeking the truth about everything related to COVID-19? For instance, why have countries with low vaccination rates had lower excess mortality? Now, that is a really important question, given the conflict of information that each and every government was given at the time, or pressing questions as to what was known about COVID vaccine adverse reactions and how Big Pharma has been let off the hook. 
covered legally for everything that occurs and all the side effects that create death and injury as a result. Uh, what about its ineffective nature in containing the virus? No question about that. Certainly no question about how dangerous the product was when it was first put to government. Uh, despite not being asked the really tough questions, he did appear po apologetic, Boris. He did appear sincere. And at one point, the normally happy-go-lucky Boris Johnson became rather emotional. We have to be realistic about 2020, the whole year, that whole tragic, tragic year. We did lock down, but then it bounced back after we'd unlocked. And so sorry, Mr. And may, may I bring you back? Sorry. It's the first week in March. Had you not been told, don't go too early, because there's a limit to which the population will be able to bear the implementation of these measures, I, that's would you have gone earlier than you did and by what time were you effectively forced to delay? I don't think I can... I can't say that I would have gone earlier because I think I would have been guided by what advice I was getting about when to put MPIs in. You understand the tenor of the question coming from King's Council. It was all about, shouldn't you have done more? The implication is, shouldn't you have locked down earlier? Shouldn't you have locked everyone up longer? That's why it's not absolutely independent. There is a narrative coming from those who are prosecuting the witnesses. Uh, the MPIs or non-pharmaceutical interventions included the lockdowns. It included the social distancing laws and, of course, the mask mandates, which if anyone believed in them, perhaps they'd assume a picket fence would stop mosquitoes as well. Uh, did anyone understand how microscopically small a virus is? Or was this conveniently ignored to have everyone wearing face nappies? Because that's what we want. Uh, it uh, creates a visual effect of control. Uh, which which induces fear. And if you've got people fearful, they will do things that you tell them to do. You will create conformity. Boris Johnson stumbled over his words on the inquiry. As the inquiry heard, he lost 5,000 WhatsApp messages between January and June of 2020. Have a listen. Do you know why your phone was missing those 5,000-odd WhatsApps? I don't know the exact reason, but it looks... Uh, as though it's something to do with the app going down and then uh, coming up again. Um, but somehow uh, not it, it automatically erasing all the things uh, between that date when, when it went down and the moment when it was last backed up. So I... I can't give you the technical explanation, but that's the best I'm able to give. He doesn't have a clue. He's lucky to actually turn the phone on. And there's a pointer for those people who think if they get into a conversation with others, secret conversations, covert conversations on WhatsApp, and no one will ever know because WhatsApp doesn't reveal anything. Well, think about what's happening at the COVID inquiry. All WhatsApp messages are uh, summoned and they need to be presented, unless, of course, they've been erased. Um, a very unconvincing explanation from Boris. This UK COVID-19 inquiry will not help the UK 
better respond to the next pandemic. But the voices of numerous expert scientists are not going unnoticed. Now, you may not have realised this, but on Tuesday, MP Andrew Bridgen hosted a historic hearing in the UK Parliament while he was joined by Dr. David E. Martin, Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Ryan Cole, Dr. Pierre Corey, Professor Angus Dalgleish, and Steve Kirsch, who's been on this program many times, who all gave expert testimony on the pandemic and its consequences. Now, the event was timed well to just precede Boris Johnson's hearing and is gaining traction online for the large number of citizens calling for a pushback against COVID hysteria, which seemed to be erupting again. Out of 650 MPs, have a guess how many turned up to that meeting? 16 turned up to listen to those experts, some of them who travelled hundreds of miles to be there. 16. What don't they want to hear? Members of Parliament can continue to ignore reality, but for how much longer will this endure while the public, if you have a look at the booster shop rates, they've had a gutful and they want more of the truth. This is TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The double standard is out there. It's so obvious. It's so frustrating. Eric Holder gets held in contempt of Congress for defying a congressional subpoena. Nothing happens. Obama's DOJ didn't pursue it. Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro defy a congressional subpoena. Joe Biden's DOJ criminally prosecutes them. Criminally prosecutes them for defying a congressional subpoena. And now we've got congressional subpoenas of Hunter Biden and James Biden, the resident's brother. And guess what? Nothing's going to be done by Merrick Garland, Barack Obama, Joe Biden's DOJ. That's right. I said Barack Obama. Obama's the shadow president. He's not the one pulling the strings. He wasn't pulling the strings in his own administration. You know, Valerie Jarrett was his minder. Where is the Iranian-born Valerie Jarrett these days? Haven't seen or heard much of her. It's because the Democrats are smart. Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT Radio. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hey, good to have your company. Well, we're now virtually in the middle of this COP28 global boiling summit in Dubai, and the highlight of which came even before the summit began, and I covered it at the time. The president of COP28, Dubai's sultan, Ahmed Al-Jaber, a very powerful oil baron, by the way, uh, he said that there was no science which says that by phasing out fossil fuels, we will offset a 1.5 degree Celsius increase in the temperature of the planet. He also suggested, this is the president of COP28, rightly, he was suggesting that a phase out of fossil fuels would mean countries missing out on sustainable socio-economic development, and it could not be achieved unless you want to take the world back into caves. That is entirely correct. Uh, with those explosive pronouncements delivered in a Zoom meeting before the summit, it was the talk of the summit for the first three days. They then got down to business, agreeing to triple the investment in renewables 
and likewise in nuclear energy. 22 countries supported the nuclear pledge, not including Australia, because our Prime Minister doesn't like nuclear. To explain to us what all these expensive promises mean and whether it'll make much of a difference to the temperature of the planet if it needs saving, I'm joined now by our environmental economist, that's what I call him anyway, Dr Alan Moran. Alan gained his PhD, by the way, in transport economics from UK's University of Liverpool. In the 80s, he was Deputy Secretary at the Australian Department of Treasury before joining the Industry Commission in 1990. He was also formerly the Director of Regulation at the Institute of Public Affairs and is now the Principal of Regulation Economics. He joins us from Melbourne. Dr. Alan Moran, welcome back to TNT Hi, Radio. Yeah, good to be here. Good to be here. All right. Gee, didn't the comments from the COP28 president before the summit began, didn't it upset the Green Evangelists? Did it ever? And he um, he backtracked, uh, not entirely, but he did backtrack saying, oh, well, he was in favour of a phasing out eventually uh, 500 years time or whatever uh, but he did uh, they, they piled on against him and he did weaken somewhat but uh, that was clearly what his views were and uh, and still are and but, even uh, if the first don't... part of what he says um, wasn't what he believed and maybe he was forced into using the wrong words what he was saying about having to get rid of fossil fuels and then still push a socio-economic development agenda for developing countries and getting it right. He's basically saying that can't happen. He's exactly right, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. There is no country which has ever done well without uh, embracing fossil fuels, or it could be with uranium, as you suggest before, nuclear. Uh, certainly, and, the, and it's not possible. Uh, we've got massive amounts of new coal-fired power stations being built in China and India and Indonesia and elsewhere. Countries that are, are actually bucking their poverty trend and, you know, have reached parity with uh, with many of the uh, European and American and Australian economies basically have done so by adopting fossil fuels and, and uranium. Uh, there is no other way. Basically, this is the cheapest form of power. If you try and do it some other way, you, you, you can't you can't even handle a grid because it's just too difficult, it's, it's too intermittent, and, and you have to have massive, sto massive storage, etc. There's one estimate of, um, you know, if you try to do it some other way, it would need $100 trillion US with, in batteries, etc. I mean, that's three times or four times the world's GNP. I mean, you just, it's, just, it's ludicrous. And yet we're on this bandwagon. Isn't it interesting that the Green Evangelists turn up, the ministerial leaders turn up, uh, the king turns up, the Pope would have turned up. But what about the economists? What about people with smart minds like yours that say, hang on a second, we need to think about whether you want to destroy the economy or not in the meantime, because if we do destroy our economy but save the planet by 1.5 degrees Celsius, it's not worth saving. Yeah. Well, hardly any of those uh, are invited. And I, I went to one of the, those meetings in Paris some years ago. Uh, and certainly hardly any of the economists who would look realistically at this are invited. The economists who do go, uh, people like our own treasury people, for example, who, who are uh, fully fully uh, uh, on board with the renewables, even though they must know they can't work, but they, they politically have to, uh, have to stay on board with it. There, there certainly is no voice at these meetings for any rationality in terms of the, uh, of the proposals being put forward. And one of the great crimes is that at this meeting, the Holy Grail 
is, hey, let's get everyone to agree that we need to phase out fossil fuels by a particular date. That's what they're all gearing up for in the next five days. But the problem is no one's come up with a proper transition calculation, Alan. That is, when can we shift over, literally pull the lever, rely on renewables to get us through our baseload power demand? That's what they're talking about, and they think that they'll get to that outcome by simply getting rid of coal, getting rid of gas, uh, putting a lot of money, trillions and trillions, and then crossing your fingers and toes and praying. Yeah, it won't work. I mean, there's no nobody's putting that forward. The only people who are, who are, who are talking about that are the Chinese and the Indians are saying, you know, quite frankly, this isn't going to work. We're not going to do it. We might do it in 2050. Um, you know, some some way way in the future date, but no, no, we 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 actually try to are trying to raise our standards of living, not not reduce them. So we're not going to go on these these renewables, etc. And by the way, we actually don't think the world is doing all that badly in terms of the uh, the environment. I was telling my audience at the beginning of the week the latest information about CO two levels and. Despite wanting to reduce this evil CO2, basically plant food, despite the trillions being invested right across the globe, despite the sacrifices we therefore have to make in living standards by spending the trillions and billions being forked out in subsidies, Alan, CO2 emissions have actually increased. I thought the plan was scientifically sound, that if you spent these trillions you would CO2 and we would save the planet. What happened to that? Well, basically, we, we spent these trillions in the West, in Australia and elsewhere. We've closed down our coal mines. We've closed down a lot of uh, competitive industry. But, you know, the West really only is about 25 28% of total CO2 emissions. The rest is China and India and Indonesia, et cetera. And there's no way in the world these go up year by year. Uh, and they, they've, they've, they've got every almost every... Every month they announce new a new power station, coal-based power station. Uh, and they 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 have in China has uh, you know hundred times as much uh, capacity through coal power coal power stations as as in other developing countries are following suit. Um, I mean the whole point about CO two is that you know it, it, it's a harmless gas. Uh, it doesn't cause any. It's, it's not. It's not. It doesn't cause any harm to health. Um, it is suggested that, that more CO2 will bring a warming in the atmosphere, other things being equal. And certainly we've seen a warming in the last 100 years. Not all of it be due to CO2, because CO2 could have only had an effect in the last 20 or 30 years. But, uh, yeah, it, it, we, we see all sorts of horrendous data. I saw something from the, the, the Guardian some time ago, basically saying, oh, the Arctic was, was going to melt. And, uh, you know, it's, it's totally illogical what they said, because they said, oh, the Arctic is now, you know, about 15 percent less ice than it was in the period uh, 1993 to 2007. And in fact, that, that had occurred during that period. And uh, Al Gore said, no, there won't be any ice in the Arctic by 2013. Well, guess what? The ice has stopped melting. It's exactly the same now, the ice uh, as it was in 2007. It, the Guardian basically doesn't tell you that. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's trying to hide the truth rather than to actually explain what's happening. Well, let's talk about that article. Um, they presented 10 major graphs. I've seen the full article. One of the graphs was predicting um, 
less ice in the Arctic, mm. no mention of the Antarctic, which is interesting. And they were also um, saying that sea levels have risen as well. You tell me, have sea levels risen uh, to an alarming extent? Uh, have ice levels been reduced in the Arctic at an alarming extent? No. I mean, the, the ice levels reduced for reasons which nobody's sure about in the Arctic. And as you said, actually, the ice levels haven't reduced in the Antarctic. In fact, they've increased. Uh, so there's a strange thing happening. We, we just don't know why that happened. Uh, sea levels, it appears the sea levels have risen. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, a centimetre a year or something. I mean, you know, it, and they, before we see the water lapping on Martin Place and Burke Street, you know, it would be about 2,000 years, if, even if that trend were to continue, which it probably almost certainly wouldn't, because after all, you know, just have, because there's a correlation of CO2 increases and, and, uh, uh, and uh, sea level rises, it doesn't mean there's a causation there. Nobody's really sure why the sea levels rose. Uh, some very sm small rise, it looks pretty good when you see it on a graph, because they, they put the, the axes in, in such a way to, to actually um, magnify the apparent amount. But no, there's a, it, it is certainly not in any sense drastic and it's certainly not a cause for any concern. You made a very good point about causation versus correlation. Too often um, we have amateur scientists or even media commentators using correlation as an example of why it's warming and why we're all be damned and while it's uh, it climate boiling um, writ large, and yet at the same time, they don't actually come up with the evidence of causation, which is exactly what we need to find out, not correlation. I want to take a quick break. I've got to get to news, Alan, and I'll come back and we'll talk about what they're promised in reference to renewables and also nuclear power. Dr. Alan Moran, my guest this hour on the program, we will take a break on TNT Radio. What brings you here? News. News entirely. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. There were extraordinary scenes in the Middle East on Wednesday as Russian President Vladimir Putin made the rare trip to the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, flanked by Russian fighter jets. There's panic in the White House after Congress blocked President Biden's request for another multi-billion dollar aid package for Ukraine. And Venezuela has mobilised its army as it prepares to claim oil-rich territory controlled by neighbouring Guyana. Are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? Then please let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or comment on Facebook, Gab or Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Okay, if you've got a question for Dr. Alan Moran, by the way, uh, by all means, jump on our talkback numbers from the United States or Canada. If you've got a question about climate, if there's something you'd like to ask about energy security, it's one 201 from the United States. From the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, one 800 Okay, Alan, a Pledge to triple renewables. Um, does that mean that global boiler targets were wrong? I thought that if we went the way we were going, we were going to achieve something, if that's what we're supposed to do. But now they're saying triple renewables. That doesn't sound too scientific to me. No, I mean, these these are just gee whiz statements that they make. Uh, but, you know, it, they, they, they are never possible. They're ambit claims in, in a way. They're never possible to actually affect but they do 
propel us along a path of, of more and more subsidies. Hardly anyone would know, but there is no such thing as any, there's no renewable, there's no wind or solar anywhere in the world which has been developed without a subsidy. Every single megawatt has got, has got a subsidy. It would not make sense without a subsidy. It can't work. So, you know, we, we, we're now at 25, 26% in Australia of renewables, wind and solar. And guess what? As we've increased that level, the, the price of electricity has gone from what was $40 uh, five, six years ago to about $125 at this point. Ridiculous. This so, you know, the, all these renewables, which were said to be cheap, are clearly not. Otherwise, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't know them. Yeah, but we keep hearing from the politicians about here, this is the cheapest source of power. It's a complete and utter lie, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, and uh, it's, and it's, what about, what, what cheapest... about building What about building wind turbines? People need to know the truth about building wind turbines. Tell them. Well, you, you mean in terms of the actual, I saw this, there's two elements of it. The wind turbines could not be built without a subsidy. And secondly, there, there is a great eyesore. Thirdly, to get because it's the power is less dense, you know, it's not like a, a coal or a nuclear or a hydro plant where there's a power surging down the lines. This is quite quite uh, uh, dissipated power. Uh, you need a lot more of these transmission lines, and people are arcing up about it. They're saying, "Well, you know, we don't want those lines going over our land. It's, it's uh, it it affects the way we can farm and other other facets of that." So basically, you no know, people don't like it, and so there is a sort of a backlash from the actual installation over and above a recognition that, wait a minute, you said all this was going to be good for the world and it was going to cost us bugger all. It's costing us a lot. I can't even see my, my electricity bill and, uh, you know, one way or another it's gone up. And, you know, today or yesterday the, the uh, federal government announced yet another plan that it was going to do. He's going to buy all the power. He's going to have tenders to buy the power. Well, I mean, that's, of a certain sort, it's going to be be particularly renewable energy. It's going to buy it on our behalf. So, in other words, they're not going to load our bills with it. They're going to load our tax bills with it. I mean, you know, the, there is no possible way that we can have renewable wind and solar, uh, which would be would would make sense economically, without a subsidy. And if you listen to the treasurer of Australia, he tends to. Uh, have I have a plan or a dream of diving into our superannuation resources and using that money to roll out more and more windmills? Yeah, that's a great idea, isn't it? You, you'd want to get out of those superannuation funds. And the problem is so many of those superannuation funds are actually run by ALP stalwarts who've been yep. put in there and they are fully on board with this policy and they will use yours and my savings our superannuation to promote a particular ideology that they favor and this will be this will end in tears it will end in tears people will lose a lot of money and they'll won't, they'll wonder what you know why is it that we we uh, we basically aren't, aren't as well off in our old age as we thought we were going to be uh, it's uh, and by it, that stage it, it'll be too late to wind back and have a second shot at it it will yeah uh, one of the things that have come out of COP28 seems to be this willingness by most countries in the world to increase their nuclear energy output. Now, I know this is probably not immediate term energy source, but it is certainly medium to long term, and it's something the world needs to think about seriously, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's well, it's to me, uh, the, the problem is 
for Australia and, and nuclear, so we've got such not a problem. We've got such cheap coal, uh, and you know, you if if we if we had common sense prevailing, if we had neutrality in terms of what what sources of energy there would be, we would be you know eighty five percent coal, which is what we were uh, thirty years ago, uh, with a bit of gas and a bit of hydro combined. But uh, because coal has been vilified so much that we now have, liberals in particular, are now looking at, at nuclear as a, as a way of at least saving some of the economy, uh, which is uh, under great, great attack from the uh, renewable lobby. Can I ask you this? Um, Emmanuel Macron talks about their AUKUS partner, Australia, being fools. How foolish Australia is to have a ban on nuclear energy, because it is an AUKUS trilateral agreement between Australia and the UK and the United States, and it involves nuclear-powered submarines. But we still have a ban on nuclear power. He's right, isn't he? He's absolutely right. It makes no sense whatsoever. But what are we going to do? Are we going to ban nuclear power? How are we going to, how are we going to feed the, the submarines? How are we going to host the submarines? It makes no sense. It makes no sense to have the ban because there is a possibility that nuclear power would be a, a viable, especially they're talking about some of the small stations, would mm. be viable in some parts of, of Australia. And we ought not to we ought not to walk away from that. But basically what we ought to do is go back to where we were, have the power systems that we that, that stack up best commercially without the government subsidies, without the government favoritism. And, and uh, that way is, is, is our route to a prosperous economy, which we're gradually dismantling now. Yeah, very much so. Lou from Canberra has jumped on our talkback lines to ask you a question, Alan. It's about solar panels. Go ahead, Lou. Afternoon, gentlemen. Smitty, how you going, mate? Very um, well. I guess you, you guys may be able to clarify this, but talking to my mates and we're all tradies, would it be fair to say that a solar panel can never generate in its lifetime the energy required to manufacture it in the first place? I, I, like, I think it, it would. Uh, <laughs> I think it, I, it, it would. It, there are, it's I a good question, is, though. It's a great question. I've seen a, a great deal of data on this. Uh, I think it would. It, it certainly wouldn't manufacture. Wouldn't wouldn't produce enough energy to justify it economically. In terms of, uh, you, you, you would not put, nobody would put a solar panel on anybody's roof, on, on their own roof anyway, unless they were subsidised. And, and most people don't even understand that they're subsidised. Basically, the, uh, there's a, the solar panel on your roof has about 40 or 50% of its cost paid for by a subsidy from other, other electricity users, which is why people, people put it on, otherwise it would make no sense. But, uh, and, but to, to give you an idea, right, I've got a, 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 an egg slab heating system in my home. That's where the concrete of the house is. And I require about 23 kilowatts of power in winter. There's no way in Canberra, when it's foggy, I'm going to generate even a fifth of that no. to heat my home. Mm. Won't even come close. Mm. Right. So basically, and, and nobody could come off grid... Uh, certainly no. not, well, nowhere in the world, actually. They can't be self-sufficient ever. No. No, no. And even in the summer, with all the, I guess, the daylight hours 
I still don't believe that I would have enough solar energy generated to turn on the slab heating in my home, the, the entire home. I, I, I just can't see it happening, let alone you know, all the other everyday functions involving electricity that we use that we don't even realise and we take for granted. Yeah, I, you could actually work it out, and the answer probably is, it depends on the system you've got, but prob- at most you could get 20% of your electricity from your, uh, from your rooftop solar, 20% of the needed electricity. Yeah, economically it's not worth it. Right, I mean, and, and it, you know, it's all right, it's worth it if in fact you were getting 20% and it was basically being paid for by that 20%, you were, you were saving that, but, ba- but the only reason why you put it in there is because the, tax, or the rate, rate payer, the other consumers, are paying you know, 40 or 50% of the cost. The, the other thing that I would have to look at, in my case, would be how many solar panels would I actually require? What size roof space am I going to need, surface area, to generate enough power to run... 23 kilowatts of heating. That's just crazy. The, the whole yeah. the house would be a solar panel. <laughs> You'll have to start yeah. renting the roofs of your neighbours. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's maybe that's the new the next. I don't know what do they call it. Bit jobs. You know the the economy that bit economy, renting yeah. space in your backyard with solar panels. Yeah. Even then, you're not going to make it. You know, if you just covered the whole area with the solar panels of your house, you you still wouldn't get anywhere close to, to actually covering more than 20, 25% of your, of your, your requirements. And of course, you'd, you'd have huge times during the day. You mentioned Canberra foggy times and whatever else, when there's hardly any solar being generated. And at yeah. night, well, everyone, it's non, non-generated. You've got to have batteries. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and a lot of these batteries, yeah, again, Canberra, it's extremely cold here in, in winter and horrible in the summer. So battery storage, I believe, is governed by temperature as well. So, you know, there's so many complex things happening at once that just don't make sense. Don't add up. They don't add up. Lou, yeah. thank you very much for your call. Can I ask Lou's question another way, Alan? Let me, let me ask you this. Would there be a solar panel manufacturing factory anywhere in the world, mainly in China, anywhere in the world run by renewables solely? No, no way in the world. It wouldn't be possible. I mean, you'd have to, it would only run like 6 or 7% of the time. You've got a big factory there and you'd have enough power for 6 or 7% of the time and then you close it down. I mean, the, the capital cost per unit of, of output would be quite colossal. No, nobody would do it. There's, there's, no, there's no such factory anywhere in the world. Okay, let me ask you about net zero. I keep hearing about how EV industries and markets are collapsing because the demand is not equaling supply. So you've got all these EVs in car lots around the world without an owner. And I'm looking at net zero. We know that Australia won't make it because, you know, the government was uh, telling porkies during the election campaign that it would. Uh, The UK has admitted this week that it can't make it. Societies need to function, Alan, and the practicality of that will always supersede ideology, won't it? It will indeed. And net, net zero, I mean, EVs, I mean, EVs are good products, of course, and for, for certain uses and certain, but, but you know, they're never going to be major, unless they're subsidised, and they have been subsidised, never going to be a major component of your car fleet, simply because they're expensive 
and uh, they're expensive to run as well. Uh, and basically, you know, they haven't got the range that you want. So, you know, uh, EVs have had a massive takeoff, been going up like mad, and now they're plateauing like mad. Ford, I think, has closed down one of its one of its production lines. General Motors in trouble. Volkswagen isn't doing very well. I mean, the Teslas are doing well, well but that's a different sort of market for the EVs. So, yes, there is a role for EVs, and we'll we'll see it. And it might even increase somewhat more, but it won't. It will never go. It will never displace the inter, internal combustion engine unless the government force it to. In which case, they'll be forcing us all to buy motor vehicles twice the twice the cost that they are at present. Let's talk about attitude. Um, you've got hold of some data that I saw earlier today that says that apart from the United States, the population of just about every major Western country fears climate change more than they did years ago. How much of that, though, has got to do with the funding monster that, you know, contributes to negative climate communication? Well, uh, almost all of it. You you can look at the numbers of billions and billions of dollars are spent by uh, renewable interests, by certain sorts of philanthropists who are in favour of renewables or against fossil fuels. There's nothing spent the other side. So we've got this surging amount of, uh, of, of evidence, or not evidence, but propaganda, basically telling us we, we have to get rid of renew, we have to get rid of uh, coal and, and, so, and oil. Um, otherwise, we've got Armageddon. The average Joe, you know, he, 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 nobody really does the sorts of homework that you and I have done to some degree and look, looking at what the implications of that, got, most people have got other things, better things to do. So they just mouth it. And especially when uh, the, the same propaganda says that this isn't going to cost them very much and it's the modern way of the world, then people are worried. And again, you know, we hear cataclysmic stories about, well, you know, the, we're going to have global boiling. Global boiling, that's what the UN Secretary General talks about. And, and um, you know, there's going to be more hurricanes and there's going to be losing the ice in, in, in the, around the poles. Uh, you know, none of this is, is, is happening um, in any systematic way, in any way which should cause any concern whatsoever. But the weight of the uh, propaganda is, is colossal. And as soon as you um, get a bad storm, as soon as you get a bad flood, and they're all bad, yeah, it all all roads lead back to climate change. It's exactly. and, and you know you can look at the numbers. Say say hurricanes have been well looked well calibrated over the last year, the, the last hundred years, hundred twenty years, and yet there's been no increase whatsoever in hurricanes. I mean that, that that was one thing that's that's basically every time there is a hurricane, especially in the United States, they blame it on climate change, but it's not nothing to do with it. Mm. It's interesting. A couple of quick comments I've got from our tntradio.live chat box. Uh, River, who is in the UK, says, EVs must be a nightmare in Australia. You are just too big. You see, EVs make sense if you want to run about around the city. They make a great deal of sense, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's a second car, you know, it's and they're, they're great. I mean, we've probably both driven them. They, they are good. There's nothing wrong with them, but... They just are not practicable, and they're not practicable in terms of cost effectiveness. Yeah. Um, a stack of comments. Um, another one that says that uh, uh, Pelly says, we have cheap coal, but we have an abundance of uranium, and nuclear is the obvious solution. Do you think, with pressure from within, that is from other Labor MPs and also 
the union movement in the last couple of weeks, do you think that the Labor government will budge on nuclear energy? I don't think any time soon, but they've they've put so much of their, you know, they've they've basically invested so much anti-nuclear that it's going to be difficult for them to change. They'd lose a lot of face, wouldn't they? Yeah, they'd lose an awful lot of face. And basically, as they say, well, we know what it'd be like in Australia. It would take 10 years before a new one got got any sort of uh, approvals simply because we've got such a regulatory state here and it would cost a lot of money. I mean, the nuclear, there's some data on nuclear plants and those in the West, uh, that isn't even Australia, but America and the UK, cost 10 times per megawatt hour to produce than those in China, for example, and the mm. same nuclear, the same nuclear technology. But, you know, there is, it's all a question of what provisions are required, the, the, the uh, regulatory arrangements in terms of uh, the nuclear, uh, basically it has made, made it that, that costly in the West. But if but you just cut your nose off to spite your face by saying never nuclear. It should be never anything. What you should do is open up all possibilities and research those possibilities. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nuclear may well be the thing of the future. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I've been saying it was a thing of the future 50 years ago. It still may be the thing of the future 50 years hence, but it may actually be the future because it is the, the most dense form of power. So theoretically, we, we should be able to find ways of harnessing nuclear uh, and, and making it work more effective than, than fossil fuels and more cheaper. But at the moment, we haven't got that. At least we haven't got it in countries like Australia, which have got a lot of gas and coal. Yeah. Um Always good to have you on the program. Love your explanations and love your economic common sense, which I think COP28 could do with a lot more of. Alan Moran, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Chris. Good to have you on the program, Dr. Alan Moran, who's the principal of regulation economics, and we love having him on the program. If you've got uh, a comment to make about that, jump on our talkback lines from the United States or Canada, one 888 Two zero one six four two five from the UK zero double three double zero two four one zero two six or from Australia and New Zealand one eight hundred six seven zero three one zero. We'll hear from Michael Schellenberger right after a quick break. Um, he is carrying on from a previous story that he broke with two other journalists about a week and a half ago about censorship from. Uh, the deep state, and how it's now moving into countries right around the world. The latest country is Ireland. He'll be telling you all about that after the break on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Well, of course, the biggest story in climate right now is Vice President Kamala Harris leaves for the climate conference with the biggest carbon footprint in history. She's heading to Abu Dhabi or whatever, for COP28 in Joe's place, with hosts under fire for wanting to push oil and gas deals. Do you know why there's so many people there? Because they realize what a scam this is and they're trying to push oil and gas deals. Anyway, she left and there's 400,000 people expected there. Now, do you really believe that there's 400,000 people are all interested in eliminating fossil fuels? I would say there are quite a few of them, given Abu Dhabi is in the Middle East and there's a lot of oil in the Middle East, that are seeking to do business because they know what a scam this is. And let's see, at its head, Sultan Al-Jabbar has denied reports 
He's using meetings at the summit to make side deals on fossil fuels produced by the United Arab Emirates. I'm sure he's smart enough to probably be doing that. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather, even if we can't go over to Abu Dhabi, because it's the only weather you got. On a virtual road, you can test the limits of your driving ability to see how fast you can go under the most extreme conditions, like when it's dark, when the weather's bad, or when the unexpected happens. The higher the speed, the harder the impact. But driving isn't a game or a race. When you're on the road, just 10 miles per hour over the limit can mean the difference between life and death. You're responsible for people's lives and your own. Slow down and save lives. You're with Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Paul Marks to Michael Schellenberger, who's an American author and former public relations professional who writes about politics, the environment, climate change, and nuclear power. He's recently broken a massive story, which I detailed for you about a week and a half ago. He's done it with two other journalists, detailing the military team assembled by the deep state in the United States in 2017 to begin a covert drive to censor and deplatform Americans who spoke and acted contrary to the government narrative. He's now posted on X with another development in this space from the UK. He wrote, it sounds like a Black Mirror episode. A small country announces a crackdown on hate speech to seize control over the entire internet. Except it's not a Black Mirror episode, it's real life. And it's happening right now in Ireland. The so-called hate speech bill isn't what it seems, he writes. It's not a bill about protecting the Irish people from hate crimes, although that's always the case that governments want to sell it that way. It's a Trojan horse designed to control the world's big tech companies, X, Facebook, Google, and YouTube. This is a free speech emergency, he writes. We thought the legislation was dead, but the Irish government is using recent riots as an excuse to ram the legislation through before Christmas. This is not a drill, he writes. This is not about Ireland. This is a totalitarian effort by global elites to censor all of us. It's right there in black and white. Quote, one of the key features of the bill, write two attorneys with a leading Irish law firm, quote, is the provision for offences by corporate bodies. So how can big tech companies avoid censorship? You guessed it, by agreeing to regulation of their content by the Irish government. They'll be forced to do it. Quote, the current iteration of the bill provides a defence for the corporate body to show that it took all reasonable steps and exercised due diligence to avoid the commission of the particular offence. Therefore, to establish and maintain such a defence, companies will need to have the appropriate processes and procedures in place. This is exactly the misinformation dis disinformation bill placed on the parliamentary table by the Labor government at the moment in Australia. The Irish government, he says, is almost certainly not acting alone. As my colleagues and I have reported, the demand for censorship is coming directly from the militaries, intelligence agencies, and the front groups in the US, UK, and around the world. The intelligence communities of the Five Eyes nations of the US, UK, Australia, Canada and New Zealand have been working together to censor ordinary citizens and politicians alike for disfavoured speech for the last several years. 
There is no time to mince words, he says. What governments are doing is against the law. They are violating the constitutions of the nations that the people elected them to uphold. Because of the high level of secrecy they are using, we can't say whether or not these are rogue elements within governments or whether these orders are coming from heads of state. In the Australian context, it is from the heads of state. But we do know that demands for censorship have come both directly from the US military and from heads of state of Western nations around the world. What's happening should terrify all freedom-loving people. We must fight back. We will fight back. Here he is with a video posted on X. It sounds like a Black Mirror episode. The police can enter your home unannounced, search your phone and computers, and arrest you for the things that you're reading, watching, or posting online. If you refuse, you could be sentenced to 12 months in prison. But it's not a Black Mirror episode. It's worse than that. It's real life. At this very moment, the government of Ireland is trying to pass a law before Christmas that will let the police go into people's homes and confiscate their phones and computers. Now you might think Ireland doesn't matter, that it could disappear tomorrow without much impact. But Ireland does matter. It's the test case for the next phase of the global crackdown by military and intelligence forces and their agents that's been happening over the last seven years. What they used to call a conspiracy theory has now been confirmed as true. Our research has exposed a far-reaching plan by military and intelligence agencies in the United States, Britain, and other nations to subvert the democratic process and engage in activities that have a basis in military techniques and which are tantamount to attempts at thought control. This isn't about censoring the far right. This is about censoring independent journalism. And if you're in Ireland, this is about censoring you. One understandable response to all this is to ignore it and hope it goes away or wish that it won't affect you. And maybe it won't, but our ancestors fought and died for the right to speak our truths, particularly about controversial cultural and political issues. And already we're fighting back and making progress. The Irish government was forced to back off this law once already, and we can make them back off again. Free thinkers in the United States and around the world must stand up now for Ireland. We have to fight the totalitarians over there so that we don't have to fight them over here. Michael Schellenberger, who will keep tailing as he chases the censorship bills, the ones that are covert and the ones that are very public-like in Australia at the moment. Uh, I want to go to uh, Andrew, who's just phoned in on the talkback line because he was telling us yesterday, he's not there now? No, he's just fallen out. I can't get to him right now. Um, I do want to tell you that the military announced last Wednesday it was grounding all of its Osprey V-22 helicopters one week after eight Air Force Special Operations Command service members died in a crash off the coast of Japan. I told you about the crash off Japan. And so the Defence Force has done something about that. The Air Force, Navy and Marine Corps took the extraordinary step of grounding hundreds of aircraft after a preliminary investigation of last week's crash indicated that a material failure, that something went wrong with the aircraft and not a mistake by the crew led to the deaths. Something led to the deaths that was wrong with the aircraft. And so they've all been taking out of service and uh, we'll see what happens from there. Let's get to a break and some news for you on TNT Radio.